So our next talk is one that um, all of us um, are asking about how best to treat um, uh, women and men transgender. And uh, part of the question is, how do you uh, do gender-affirming care in the best possible way, both medically and, and to nurture um, their uh, experience when they're working with us in the clinic. And we're very pleased to have Linda West here with us. As you can see, she's a, a doctorate, but also a nurse practitioner, uh, advanced practice nurse. Um, and she works at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Um, well, so there's obviously the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She's in Milwaukee. Um, it's a great pleasure to have her here. And she's going to address for us uh, the issues related to uh, excellent care for transgender folks. So Linda is here. Yes, welcome. She is here. Yay. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you everyone. It is an honor to be here um, and without further ado, I'm going to get started. We um, are going to talk today about how, about some concepts that may be new, may be familiar to some of you. I hear that most people who took the pre-conference question related to trans and gender affirming care got it correct. So I might be preaching to the choir, but I hope that you will take something you didn't know um, away from our talk today. Um, we're gonna talk about culturally safe and gender affirming uh, patient-provider interactions and how that has an impact on health outcomes for trans people. We're going to talk about gender-affirming interventions um, briefly, hormones and surgery, but um, we'll talk more about that in the breakout session later this afternoon, about how, how we need to be uh, taking all that into consideration in the uh, context of HIV management, and then talk about implementing some uh, best practices in clinical settings. So. Our first question, everyone has your audience response things ready? I know we, everybody just came from lunch. Who uh, knows how many trans adults are estimated to be living in the US today? 250,000, 500,000, 1.4 million or 4 million? Okay, yes, most people got this correct. Um, roughly 1.4 million, however, um, we are not exactly um, sure because this is not being collected routinely. So these are always, these are all estimates. Um, and when, when we say the word trans, we mean our individuals with a gender identity and expression that does not align with the sex that was assigned at birth. And so there's actually many different um, uh, Asp, uh, terminologies and ways that people might refer to themselves, folks of trans experience. It might include non-binary or genderqueer, male or female, um, trans woman or trans man. And so generally when I use the term transgender in this talk, I'm referring to a very diverse group of people. And um, sometimes we refer to it as the trans umbrella. So sort of an overall um, catchphrase that is actually referring to people who may not use these words to describe themselves at all. And another reminder that everyone in this room I'm sure knows well, but I always have this in my slides, that we're talking about gender identity, which is very different from sexual orientation. And so what, what our estimates are telling us is that it's about 1.4 million uh, trans adults in the US. 
And just to put this in perspective, it's a, a slightly more than the number of adults and children living with type 1 diabetes. And so those of us doing HIV care are probably more familiar with um, and working with trans folks than people in general primary care. But if you have not already, you will certainly be um, caring for someone of trans experience. Trans people um, often are navigating stressful realities due to stigma and discrimination. Um, the, the way that our society has structured gender in a binary, assuming that gender is attached to sex assigned at birth with norms and all sorts of hosts of things that get attached to gender, um, this shapes the environment. And for many people, this makes for unsafe um, realities in their workplace, their homes, and many public spaces. So just some statistics when compared to uh, cisgender U.S. adult population, trans folks are two times as likely to be living in poverty, three times as likely to be homeless, three times as likely to be unemployed, have a nine times higher suicide rate compared to the general population, and higher rates of sexual and physical assault. And so what this means is that folks are coming in with experiences of trauma. And unfortunately, these experiences also happen in the healthcare setting. Um, how, many, how many people in your formative training learned anything about trans healthcare? Very few of us, right? And so it it's actually seems low to me that about 50% of trans people reported having to teach their, their healthcare provider about trans healthcare. 20% um, people uh, in this large national survey were actually reported having been refused care. I still hear about this all the time. 28% were subjected to harassment in healthcare settings or had, been, had postponed care because of discrimination or because of fear of discrimination. So delaying care, not seeking out care, this is a reality that we as healthcare providers are trying to do something about. Um, but this is what, what we're, the, the environment that we're working with, the experiences that people are having in our healthcare systems. We know that um, HIV among trans people in the United States uh, is, is now being more accurately captured um, by, by HIV reporting, including uh, information about gender identity and sex assigned at birth. So we have 20, uh, roughly 2,300 trans people receiving an HIV diagnosis between 2019 and 2014. The majority of these were, were transgender women. 15% um, were trans men. They did not capture non-binary identities, so we're not quite sure uh, for folks who actually don't identify as male or female where they might fall. Um, and about half lived in the South. HIV among trans people is uh, disproportionately impacting people of color, um, which we see similarly in the cisgender population, and significantly disproportionately impacting trans women uh, globally and here in the United States. So some data about the prevalence, most of this is, uh, is estimates and pooled data. But we know that trans feminine individuals have some of the highest concentrated HIV epidemics in the world. Among trans men, um, we have less information. And this does not mean um, that, uh, that trans men aren't at risk for HIV. Um, but the data that we do have is, is limited and is showing much lower rates. Um, you know, the studies, the, systematic, the one systematic review we have um, only found six studies, and one of the studies only had one person. Um, we're probably underestimating um, some trans men who may be at high risk, and so um, this is important to keep in mind, especially for those of us also doing HIV prevention work. And the take-home message, if nothing at all, from this talk today is that 
Um, Gender-affirming care will improve healthcare outcomes across the board, including HIV outcomes. We have um, a couple of different studies on this slide here that looked at our continuum of care for HIV and found specifically among trans women that lower proportion of retention in care um, was occurring among trans, trans women compared to cis women and cis men. Um, but when people were engaged in care, they had similar virologic suppression. And then at these nine demonstration spin sites, we found um, that about half of trans folks were on hormones. And if their HIV primary care provider was also their hormone prescriber, they were three times more likely to have a suppressed viral load and to be engaged in care. So we know that this works to do gender-affirming care and hormone care alongside HIV care. And similarly, we, um, uh, Jay Sebelius has done a lot of work on something called the gender affirmation model, um, showing that lower levels of gender affirmation in someone's life leads to worse health outcomes, and greater levels of gender affirmation leads to improved health outcomes. And so this model was recently tested and, and specifically related to virologic suppression, finding that when trans women were, were receiving gender affirmation throughout their life, and I'll tell you what, that, what I mean by that in a minute, um, and were empowered in their healthcare, um, this mediated the effect of other types of discrimination that they were experiencing on their viral loads. Um, and so we, we can actually do something about um, the, the levels of, high levels of discrimination and stigma that are impacting trans women especially by incorporating gender-affirming care into our HIV practices. So I'm going to propose for you um, some frameworks of how we can do this. Um, the first is a framework of cultural safety. Most people in this room have probably heard about cultural competency or cultural humility. And cultural safety is, um, is even broader than that to uh, really take the perspective of making sure that healthcare is safe and free from harm, considering that people who are marginalized in society are going to also experience unsafe experiences in the healthcare setting, because our healthcare setting is a microcosm oftentimes of these larger structural issues. And so cultural safety encourages us to care for the unique experience of each person, not everyone's story is going to be the same, and encourages us to become aware of our own biases. As a cisgender person, I don't know what it's like to, have, to be of trans experience, and that is something I must continually be checking myself about, and how I might be assuming, making assumptions, or bringing my own implicit bias to the healthcare encounter. And that will help us avoid perpetuating harm, especially unintentional harm. And then we also need to understand that we're working within these structural systems and create that create dynamics of power that impact the healthcare encounters. And the other piece of this is managing uncertainty. And so another thing I just want people to think about, uh, and you don't have to raise your hands, is the first time you worked with a trans person in the healthcare encounter and maybe didn't know exactly how to answer a question they had or uh, what to do exactly because maybe there weren't clinical guidelines at that point. And so um, Tonya Potit did this study some years ago now, but it's still, I think, very important. Um, when healthcare providers who were trans healthcare providers uh, noticed that they were uncertain about something in caring for trans people, that they managed that uncertainty with a, with, with a stigmatizing response. 
as healthcare providers, we're expected to know the answer to as many things as we can know the answer to, right? And so because of this power dynamic that's set up that we're supposed to have all the answers, sometimes blaming and shaming and othering and discriminating happens even inadvertently. And so what I encourage um, all of us to do is uh, take a few moments when you're back in your clinical settings and look at where we might be um, having some resistance to acknowledging that the patient sitting in front of us um, is actually the best authority in their own life and that means we have to relinquish some power. What do I do when I'm uncertain about something? When people are coming and asking me for something that I hadn't heard about before or wasn't in the guidelines? And where maybe have I responded consciously or unconsciously with a stigmatizing action or reaction? And so we bring all of this then to the gender-affirming care model where what we're doing is affirming and recognizing one's authentic gender across these four domains. And some of these are, um, are more structurally complicated than others. Um, socially, it's as simple as using the name and pronoun that someone tells you is their name and pronoun. Um, and that also, though, can mean institutionally that needs to happen in the electronic medical record or on and paperwork. Psychologically, this is uh, allowing for self-actualization, preventing internalized negative beliefs, connecting people to behavioral health services that are affirming. Medically, this includes medical interventions like hormones or other bodily modifications or surgeries. And legally, this often involves a process of legal changing of the name or gender marker on identity documents or health insurance cards or things like that. And so there's sort of this, um, the way I think of it is this three-pronged approach to doing this when we're in a clinical setting. So in our clinical environment, this means our intake forms, the very first thing that people usually see when they're walking into our offices, um, and these might be electronic now, have a place for people's name and pronouns, have a place to then also identify the name that they have on their insurance card, um, because with billing, it, can, it becomes a whole, uh, a whole mess sometimes explanations about why we need to have all this information, and two-step data collection, which I'll show you a sample of in a second. Um, so all of these things in our institutions in the clinical environment can create gender affirmation across those four domains. Um, this also includes making your clinic or your organization a safe place for trans people to work. It might mean changing HR policies or making sure um, that you have bathrooms um, for both clients and uh, staff that are uh, gender neutral or policies that allow people to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. So two-step gender identity collection, most people are very familiar with this now. Um, how many of you are not doing this in your clinical practices? All right, most people are. And so, so we all know that this works, that collecting the safer information works and it's going, and it is already starting to provide us with much more accurate data and information, but also helps us in the clinical, um, clinical setting as well. And so with patient-centered care, this is the other, uh, the, the other piece of our um, gender-affirming care model, is care that's respectful and responsive to patients' preferences, needs, and values. It's ensuring that the patient's value gu values guide the care, and it really is about prioritizing community engagement and leadership. Um, if you're not already um, seeing a lot of trans people in your clinical setting, I'm sure that they are in your area 
um, and I would encourage you to reach out or set up a way that you can learn what it is that trans or non-binary people in your, in your setting or in your clinic need and want to make your space more um, welcoming for that, for folks. And patient-centered care is also about establishing trust. Um, this is my uh, favorite definition of trust, which is choosing to make something that I value vulnerable to another person's actions. This is actually what happens every time someone walks into a healthcare encounter. Anytime any of us become patients, we notice um, pretty quickly what it feels like to make something vulnerable, our body, our health, um, uh, um, vulnerable to another person's actions. And so then distrust is when what's important to me is not safe with someone else. And so looking to establish trust um, is what most, of, most patients are doing and trans folks in particular are, um, are watching to see that this is happening and are going to sense that this is happening through all these different ways that we can be affirming of their gender, their authentic gender. So the next thing we're gonna talk about is communication and language. And um, this, might be, this might be too easy of a question, but we'll see how we do. So the following would be an example of gender affirming communication and language. First is saying, hi, my name is Linda, and I use she, her pronouns. What name and pronouns may I use for you? The second uh, option would be, thank you, sir. The third option would be a sign that says, welcome to the Women's Health Clinic. And the fourth, do you have sex with men, women, or both? Okay, yep, and why, why would it not be the, the, the final uh, question, sex with men, women, or both? Um, and that's, that's assuming that gender is binary, that there is only a male or, or female um, gender, and we know actually that gender is on a spectrum and many people don't identify um, as male or female or both or, um, and so removing sort of these gender types of language, this gender type of language um, actually is affirming whether or not we're working with someone who we know is trans or, or not. And so communication and language means often in clinical settings that we have a protocol where we're asking for and documenting name and pronouns. The documenting part gets a little more complicated depending on what your EMR looks like. Is it in a place where everyone can see it and use, it, use name and pronouns consistently and accurately? But it is also about avoiding this language that, um, that might assume binary gender. And, um, and also understanding that medical terminology, terminology for body parts, might be different than how folks experience their bodies or their gender. And so asking people um, before doing certain procedures or um, asking people what language they might be using um, as a part of the exam can, um, can help with that as well. So the final piece is advocacy. And so what we're talking about with advocacy is really working within some of us these very large systems where our interpersonal interaction with someone is affirming but multiple steps along the way of them getting into that exam room with us or getting into our clinic, they may have encountered stigmatizing interactions or uh, situations that were not affirming. And so this um, sometimes means uh, a large overhaul of various policies and procedures. Um, sometimes it means explaining why the, the patient summary sheet we print out or the referral is gonna have 
the legal name on it because that's all our EMR can do, um, or figuring out how to change that. I mean, there's so many different possible scenarios here of what we could do as clinicians um, when we're noticing things like that to step in and say, okay, we need to change this policy or this procedure or this workflow because it's not affirming. Um, and so I'm going to skip ahead with, uh, in the interest of time, with some of these other ideas. But those of you already doing uh, work with trans folks probably have experienced with this already. And so it's this ongoing process, right, of gender affirming care and ongoing self-reflection. And how can we keep uh, creating spaces that are safe uh, for trans and non-binary people to come and access care? Because we know um, that it improves health outcomes across the board. And then the other piece, which, um, which even though some of that might be reviewed, maybe this piece is what people are more here for, is, um, is understanding what our current best practices is for, um, for gender-affirming medical care. We know that right now um, we have a current DSM diagnosis phrase called gender dysphoria. The WHO has, is going to be adopting a diagnosis of gender incongruence. Whatever we want to call it, when someone has an incongruence between their gender identity and their physical characteristics that causes distress, gender-affirming hormones and or surgeries are medically necessary. This is best practice. This is statements across the board from every uh, professional organization. And um, it is now covered more and more by insurances and, um, and protected somewhat um, from discrimination and from various exclusions. Um, Across the world, we generally follow the WPATH standards of care seven, um, which are available at the WPATH.org website. They are currently under revision. The standards of care eight will be out sometime, maybe next year. We're working on them diligently. And um, so this is the place to turn when you're looking for what the um, best practices are um, in providing gender affirming care. Um, the current WPATH standards of care do not have details about um, clinical guidelines. So what, what dose do I prescribe? Or when do I do a mammogram? Or when do I do a DEXA scan? Or all these types of things. So this is where I encourage you to turn to these other two uh, sets of information. The UCSF Transgender Care Guidelines, which are now housed at this website here, that Maddie Deutsch and uh, a bunch of us also contributed to. These are geared for the primary care provider. Um, and we also have the Endocrine Society Guidelines, which are written by and for endocrinologists, but also has a lot of useful and helpful information. We also have something called the TransLine, if you're not familiar. If you are a practicing clinician and doing a little bit of hormone prescribing, but sometimes find yourself unsure of what to do, please use this resource. Um, we have a set of hormone prescriber protocols up here. We have information about how to set up your office, how to do billing, how to um, write letters for surgeries that insurances will require, and consultation services where you can submit a question um, and someone will reply to you via email in about 24 hours or so. So all of these things are available to you. And I give you all of that because um, I'm encouraging all of us as primary care providers, as HIV providers, to be offering uh, gender-affirming medical care in our, in our HIV settings because we know this improves health outcomes and because hormone care is best practice, is medically necessary. So when we're doing medical gender affirmation, um, hormone therapy specifically um, is guided by the patient's goals. Um, when, we're, when someone's goal is to have masculinization, um, 
we use testosterone formulations and doses that are similar to hypogonadism, something that most of us in HIV, the HIV world, are quite familiar with. When we do feminization, we use estrogen either alone or in combination with an antiandrogen, and that's usually spironolactone. Medical affirmation can also look like surgical interventions. Um, many surgical interventions, according to the WPATH standards of care, have requirements. Sometimes certain surgeries, someone has to have been on hormones for a certain period of time, has to have certain BMI requirements, uh, letters from mental health professionals. And in the interest of time, I only had 30 minutes. I can't get into all of that here. This could be a three-day long talk. But all of this information is in those guidelines that I gave you. A few things that I want us to think about in the HIV world. Some potential comorbidities. The first is osteoporosis, especially for transfeminine people or anyone who's had a gonadectomy. Um, we might be concerned about osteoporosis alongside with uh, the potential risk of that with someone living with HIV. We know that trans women might have a lower bone mineral density even prior to starting feminizing hormones. Um, there's been some data on this, mostly out of Europe. Um, we think this might be due to, in general, lower physical activity or lower muscle mass, lower vitamin D levels. Um, but this should be something that's on our radar um, as HIV providers who are also doing hormone care. Similarly, cardiovascular disease is everybody's concern all of the time. Uh, so many possible risks, but we, we do have some evidence that estrogen may increase risk of cardiovascular disease, and of course we're also concerned about um, uh, blood clots. And so, um, so what the, the main take-home message is, is that transdermal estrogens are, are probably the safest based on the data we have now. Um, I should have had a blanket statement. We need more data about all of this. But um, what I'm presenting to you is the, is the best expert uh, and the best data we have available information for you to take home. Um, the other thing that's being looked at now is how minority stress and trauma um, is impacting cardiovascular risk as well. Um, and so this, uh, th this needs to be teased out a bit, I think, from um, putting all of the blame um, on, on hormones, that there's probably other factors that go into that. Um, tobacco use, substance use, so many things um, that trans folks are at higher risk for that are related to minority stress as well. And so, all right, we have our next ARIS question. Make sure you're still awake. Feminizing hormone therapy for gender affirmation is contraindicated with most ARVs because of the drug-drug interactions. Is this true or false? What do we have to worry about with drug-drug interactions? I bet you all know this Yeah. Yep. Correct. Feminizing hormone therapy for gender affirmation is not contraindicated with most ARVs. So what do we know about this? Well, the data is lacking, again. Um, most of the data we have is based on studies with ethanolestradiol, the medication, you know, the horm oral hormone contraceptives, which is not what we use in gender-affirming therapy. Do not use eth ethanolestradiol. We need to have a dose um, to, to reach our goals. We use 17-beta-estradiol for gender-affirming care. Um, but we're still concerned, potentially, what, what's happening um, because everything's going through cytochrome P450. 
Um, it's similar to most of our ARVs. Um, the data we had up until November 6th of this year is uh, that more likely than not what would be happening with most of our ARVs is that the estradiol levels would probably be lower um, unless you're using fosfempranivir still. And so this is a too hard to read little snapshot from this excellent overview article that Dr. Radix and others uh, put out in 2016. Um, if you're wondering at all what might be going on between estradiol, again, this was all ethanol estradiol being studied, um, between ethanol estradiol and then maybe we can extrapolate that to what we're doing um, with, with, uh, with gender affirming hormone care. Um, we see no effect for um, for dolutegravir at least, and in these studies, no effect with tenofovir, but there's been a recent um, PK uh, study that came out that I don't have in these slides because it was so recent, um, looking at, uh, at PrEP and hormones, because this is certainly a concern. And um, there's definitely some, some, there's still some questions about whether or not estradiol is lowering tenofovir levels and we don't have um, PK data on uh, TAF, on our newer PrEP regimen, but um, this is to be followed and to be continued and to be watched. Um, the take home for PrEP for trans women is make sure that they're taking it every day. Um, that's the most important thing, not the um, dose interval uh, PrEP treatment. And so, um, key points to take home is that HIV itself is certainly not a contraindication to gender-affirming interventions. People living with HIV who have functioning immune systems can certainly um, pursue surgeries. Can, uh, it is, it is, there's not major drug-drug interactions that make uh, hormones contraindicated. Um, combining hormone therapy into HIV clinical care uh, streamlines the management of both things and increases access to care and improves virologic outcomes. Um, we want to watch out for osteoporosis and cardiovascular complications in trans people who are living with HIV. And we as HIV providers are well equipped to do this work. Um, and if you're not already, I encourage you to go back uh, and take this information, all of the guidelines that we have available, um, and make your uh, space more um, affirming and welcoming to folks of trans experience. Um, 30 minutes is not enough since most of you here didn't get this in your form of education. So there's a lot of educational opportunities available to you. Um, especially, I encourage you, if you're looking to, um, to implement some of these changes in your clinic, looking into the Trans Health ECHO program, um, which is a comprehensive training for clinical sites interested in improving and access to care for trans people. There's a lot of conferences. The National LGBT Education Center has excellent information about PrEP uh, among trans folks. And I also have a list of reading for you. And I made it without this light turning red, so I have plenty of time for questions. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Linda. Have a seat. Um, very nice. Um, so on, on a lot of levels, I think most of us have become pretty comfortable just um, dealing with the pronouns appropriately in our clinics. I think we do pretty well. The, the challenge, I think, is making that leap to feeling comfortable uh, prescribing um, the hormones. And as I look at your slide, I think, hmm, that's not too difficult. I mean, it Good. looks pretty straightforward. Um, but is it the type of thing we can just, just start doing with confidence and um, 
how do you suggest that folks who haven't done this before get started? Sure. I think that um, the, the most accessible set of guidelines and information, which, I mean, I remember when I first started as an HIV provider, I was sitting out in these audiences at IIS USA Talks, and I thought, how am I going to know what to do? I looked at the guidelines, right? And then it kind of spells it out for you, and you're like, okay. And so that's what we've tried to do, especially with the UCSF guidelines, make okay. them easy to use for, and I know y'all are busy, for busy providers. You know, it's not like you have an extra hour for the first trans person that you're gonna prescribe hormones for. You kind of have to figure it out. So use those, I would definitely recommend use those guidelines and use the trans health, uh, the trans line consult service. Okay. So a more complicated question is um, a patient is very, um, enthusiastic or wants to have a surgical procedure uh, for gender change. Um, a lot of controversy about it, um, ranging all across the spectrum. How many patients have you had in that situation and how did you manage that? Well, there's, there's a whole host of different surgeries. So we can be talking about everything from um, facial feminization surgery, which would be sort of a plastic surgery type of procedure. Many people um, access plastic surgery without, um, without needing to have a letter from a mental health provider. And that's everything. And then there's um, uh, chest masculinization surgery for transgender men, um, which is a very common procedure. I've had lots and lots of people um, access that procedure. Um, and then uh, often the more, the more complicated procedures are genital confirmation or genital affirmation surgeries, either vaginoplasty or phalloplasty. Um, I think that most of us will have differences in our patient's ability to access all of these surgeries depending on where we live and mm -hmm. where we work because state by state, the access is really dependent on insurance coverage, um, access to surgeons who know how to do these procedures, uh, Medicaid coverage, and things like that. So where I work, we had an exclusion recently lifted um, for Medicaid recipients. So I haven't had many people in Wisconsin being able to access surgeries until a couple of months ago. Okay. So it just kind of depends where you're at. Okay, a couple other questions here. Do we have the same recommendations for transgender populations regarding uh, estradiol, et cetera, for women who are over 40 who smoke? Is it a concern about the cardiovascular? Yes. Yep. And so any um, the whole pileup of cardiovascular risk factors or uh, risk factors for blood clotting, we would also be concerned. So women over 40 who smoke would be, um, I would be recommending uh, those folks to use transdermal estrogen um, because it, it is not, not so far. And we have a little bit of data in trans women specifically looking at transdermal versus oral um, that transdermal is, is definitely safer and does not increase risk of blood clots. This uh, question says that injectable um, estrogen prices are now greater than $200 a vial. Mm. Yeah. What do you do well, about that? There's a whole bunch of things going on with injectable estrogen. There's also a shortage sometimes. Does anyone run into that? Yep. Um, I use GoodRx, not to advertise for them, but the, um, the various discount uh, prescription uh, options that are out there. Um, but yes, cost of medications is certainly an issue, and um, injectable estrogen uh, tends to run a little bit more expensive, although the vial can last longer, so sometimes it actually ends up to be about, um, about the same price at the end of the day. 
Okay. This uh, question is a specific patient question about um, um, a transgender uh, woman who's on spironolactone um, and finasteride and still has a testosterone level of over 500. Are there tricks to mm -hmm. uh, getting the testosterone levels mm -hmm. lower? Yeah, and so um, a GnRH analog would be the trick, but it's yeah. very expensive. Um, but that's the most effective antiandrogen we have, and it's okay to use in adults. It's certainly in the guidelines. It's just difficult to access. Um, I have had uh, folks in that scenario who choose to have archaeotomy, um, because and then that obviously um, works. But sometimes, um, sometimes you'll find different clinicians trying different things, maybe changing the formulation of the estrogen. So, for example, someone's on oral estrogen and you're having trouble getting testosterone suppressed, switching to either transdermal or injectable sometimes gives a little extra boost um, to the, the, you know, HPA access and then can slow down the body's production of testosterone. Um, those are all just tricks. We haven't had a study to, to answer that question, unfortunately. All right. Um, what about maximizing the injectable estrogen? So right now, say it's 60 uh, milligrams a month. Is there harm in going higher, like to 80? Mm. Like um, trying to stretch out the because yeah. of the shortage or whatever or the yeah, cost. Just, yeah, just right. I mean, I found my, just and now this is just anecdotal, but everyone kind of is is going to metabolize the injectable meds differently, and so I find that people are we do the best to actually do smaller amounts every week instead of large amounts once a week once every two weeks or once a month and so i would i would actually suggest going that route maybe not doing as much further apart but less um, and maybe you would need less overall but it really is patient it's really patient dependent and if if they're on an arv that could lower their estrogen levels you got to be taking that into consideration too this is a question about the estrogen patch because in its use otherwise, um, when used continuously, was associated with a higher risk of uh, DVT. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you con mitigate those concerns? Uh, right. So we want you. We want to be using seven, the synthetic 17 beta estradiol. Um, not any. Not any. It's not the oral contraceptive estrogen patch. And so we're we're certainly that's the culprit there. Yeah. So yeah, just make sure you're using the similar formulations to postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy. That's what we're that's what we're using in TransHealth. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how can we address comp increasing comprehensive medical care, mental health, and primary care hormones without um, increasing inequity with um, the insurance system. In other words, you mm -hmm. keep doing all this extra stuff, but maybe there isn't coverage. Not getting have, reimbursed for that it. That we use your case managers for. Yeah, and get creative with, with, with billing. I mean, I guess it really depends on your setting. Um, but um, most, most insurances are reimbursing. If we're in HIV settings, we're, you know, in Ryan White settings. Yeah, it really just depends on the, <laughs> I right. feel like that's so complicated about what, what the level of access might be. Yeah. But I think the goal would be, um, and hey, you got plenty of data to take back if someone's pushing back against you doing this work, that HIV outcomes are going to be better. If we, you know, we have these three studies now and even more coming down the line, HIV outcomes are going to be better when we integrate gender-affirming care and hormone care into our HIV setting. So take that to the insurance company or there, the there you go. funder, right? All yeah. right. 
Uh, is, there an, is there an age limit on when you would prescribe uh, uh, hormonal therapy? In other words, is there a point where you say, ah, uh, increased risk, benefit? How uh, old? Yeah, yeah, how old, yeah. Right. This is, the, this is a good question um, that we don't have like, clear guidance for in the guidelines, so I, I figured this question would come. Um, there is not a, an age limit that, that most experts are saying, well, that's just not worth it, because the, the, um, the point of gender-affirming care is, um, is, the gender, is gender affirmation. You are going to have less physiologic response um, to hormone therapy very likely the older someone is. Um, uh, and you have to take into consideration other issues, so other comorbidities, cardiovascular risk, et cetera. But like, for example, I have a patient right now is not living with HIV, but is 76 and started hormones at 60. Um, we're doing it in coordination with her cardiologist because she had a history of an MI and everything's mm. great and she's very happy and, and living living a very happy, her best life. <laughs> and so, yep. you know, so it is okay to do, um, just use your, your clinical knowledge and so coordinate. So it's all individualized. We have time mm -hmm. for just a couple more questions. So okay. um, specifically, again, I think this is transgender woman, how do you counsel about hormonal effects in terms of risk for cancer or mm -hmm. um, DVT? I think you addressed the 17 beta, but yep. what, what do you say specifically? Yeah, so, um, when it comes to breast cancer, again, we're, I'm going to say this based on the data we have, which is not um, the best gold standard data, but at least it's something specific to trans women. Most of the data we have about breast cancer is from the VA system, because actually they've been collecting gender identity information for a while. And we did not see any difference in risk for uh, or incidence of breast cancer among trans feminine people compared to cis women. In fact, it's probably less because of the long, the period of time that people have been exposed to estrogen. Okay, and we do have one or yeah. one theme of the last one, even though we're a little bit off on time. But sure. the, the two questions related to finding access to surgery when there's no insurance coverage. I'm talking uh, mm -hmm. more um, general or gender affirming in that mm -hmm. way. So, are there resources or places that you can? Or that you refer people when you don't have access otherwise? You mean like access no like insurance. money? Yeah, money. Or surgeons? Money. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, that's the, that's the challenge. Um, there's, there's, a very, a, there's a few small scholarship funds I know of in the States. Um, there's, there's certainly, um, you know, some, some information on the, on the Transline uh, website about some of these different things. But it's it's extremely limited when someone's in a in a space because if you're in a state or an area that doesn't have um, good insurance coverage, you probably also don't have surgeons in your area, yeah, and right. so you're going to have to travel. Funny so, how those things go yeah. hand in hand. Right. Great. Yeah. Well, so we're still certainly running into access issues when it comes to surgery. Great. Thank you very much. Yes. Wonderful thank you. coverage. Great. Yeah, tough, tough topic. And come to the breakout session. I'll have plenty more cases then. Yep.